back. Isaiah chapter 41 is where we are today. Now, we spent the whole month of December in Isaiah 40. And so it may have seemed when we came to the end of December and the end of Isaiah 40 that we should just be at the end of Isaiah altogether because it was such a great chapter about our great God and His promise to strengthen us and renew us as we wait upon Him. But there is so much more. And by the time we finish Isaiah, sometime this year, maybe May, I don't know, spring, summer, when we finish, we will have heard about a time and a place that awaits us. We are going to hear about a time that is beyond us, a new heaven and a new earth, when and where the renewal will be completely new, and it will be that way forever. So, we're going to continue on, starting today, first Sunday of the new year, with the word of the Lord from Isaiah 41. In this chapter, the Lord is speaking to His people who are in captivity, and He tells them, Fear not. But he does not say this because of something about them. It's simple, but it is so important. He does not say, Fear not, based on something about them. In this chapter, the Lord speaks about himself. He says, I am, I have, and I will. And because of that, fear not. So the message for us today in Christ, the message for you today, if you come to Christ and become a Christian, the message for you who are believers today is the same. God says, I am. God says, fear not. We're going to hear that from this chapter. Now, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10, just the middle section. We're going to talk about the whole chapter, but I want you to stand with me in honor of God's Word, and we'll hear the heart of Isaiah's message to the people. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now remember where we are in the history of all of this in the book of Isaiah. I want you to remember that Isaiah lived and he wrote about 700 years before Christ. The first part of the book of Isaiah is prophecy to the people 700 years before Christ in Isaiah's day and about their situation of that day. And that situation was, when Isaiah first started writing to them, 700 years before Christ, these people were failing to live to the, up to the covenant that God had made with them. They were God's people. 
Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, Jacob, all these names are God's people, same people. And they were not faithful to the Lord. And so by the time we get to the end of that first half, verses 1 through 39, by the time we get to the end of chapter 39, Isaiah gives a predictive prophecy and says that because of their unfaithfulness to God, they're going to be taken away into exile in Babylon. So we spent a long time, all of last fall, in that section. Then we came in December to chapter 40. Chapter 40 and following, Isaiah wrote this, but he wrote it 700 years before Christ. He was looking ahead, looking ahead about 100 years later, at the time when the exile would actually happen. And that, that's where we are, starting in chapter 40 and moving on. Now, at chapter 40, the people are actually in exile. And Isaiah wrote this 100 years previous to that exile, so that when they're there, they could read and hear his words and be encouraged. They could remember their God and be encouraged because even though they were in exile because of their sin, God had not given up on his people. God does not give up on his people. So Isaiah tells them in that time, in the time of their exile, that God is going to raise up another king, another nation, to conquer the Babylonians who first took them into exile. And God is going to raise up that king after conquering the Babylonians, and he will return them back to Jerusalem. And that actually happened another 70 or so years after they were taken into exile. And that king was Cyrus of Persia. So, all that to say, what we're reading now, starting in Isaiah 40 in December, and now where we are in 41, what we're reading are the words to God's people who are in exile so that they will remember. Now, there's a key point to that. Even before we get to what he said, there's a key point to this. Not only are we giving the history in the context of Isaiah 40 and forward, but the key point is that God revealed to Isaiah what was going to happen a hundred years from that point. The key point is found later in the chapter when the Lord says to the nations, get your idols, set them up right here so we can have a conversation, and let's see if your idols can decree and declare and cause to happen something a hundred years from now. If they can do that, they're in control. But the people knew they couldn't. And God's making a statement in, in Isaiah 41. He's making a statement that he did that. He showed Isaiah what would happen a hundred years with the Babylonians and 70 years later with Cyrus of Persia because God is God. The fact that these exiles are experiencing these things and reading this message in their situation that Isaiah wrote to them is evidence of God's sovereignty. Evidence that God can declare and bring about things in the future. That's part of the Lord's argument in Isaiah 41. We're going to see it in just a moment, but that's part of the Lord's argument in Isaiah 41 is that He is the one who is sovereign over all, therefore, that is the basis of their trust in Him. And there are the words. We read them. 
I am, God said. I have, I will, therefore, fear not. Here's the main point. The Lord is communicating to his people. This is very important. The Lord is communicating to his people that their captivity in no way threatens or affects his sovereignty. That's very important for us to understand. Because in your personal life and throughout history, there will be moments when we are all tempted to doubt God's control and God's sovereignty because of our circumstances. And the main message of Isaiah 41 is that their captivity in Babylon in no way threatens the sovereignty of God. Nor does it threaten their election as God's people. He chose them. And because he chose them, he will not cast them off. He will not forget them. He will strengthen, help, and uphold them. The message to the exiles in the 6th century is the message for Christ's church and for every Christian at all times and all places, including right here in this room today, until he returns. The Bible says in the New Testament that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. God, are you going to fulfill that promise? Yes. How, when, by whom? Christ. And so the promise of Isaiah 41 that we'll see today is fulfilled with a resounding amen, yes, in Jesus Christ. Now in this chapter, there are really two messages. There's first a message to the nation. So if you've got your Bible opened up, it might be a little hard if you're just scrolling on the phone, but you can figure it out. If you've got your Bible opened up, if you'll just look at verses 1 through 7, Isaiah 41, 1 through 7, and then 21 through 29, so that's bookends, all right, two, two parts, and that's the message of God to the nations. And right in the middle, 8 through 20, part of it I read, verses 8 through 20, that's the message directly to Judah, to God's people. So two messages, the first one to the nations, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 21 through 29, this message is particularly addressing the situation of their current captivity in Babylon and the fact that Cyrus of Persia will be stirred up, he calls it. We'll see that in a moment. Raised up by God to conquer the Babylonians and then liberate God's people. This message is about God's power. This message to the nations is about God's control over the nations. He is the one who stirred up this pagan Persian king Cyrus to return his people back. The people of Judah are hearing this. It's an indirect message to them because they're hearing God's word to the nations so that they will be encouraged by God's sovereign power and they will return to him. Then the second message, verses 8 through 20, is directly to Judah, and we read that. It's a word of exhortation not to fear. So the two messages. Let's talk about the first one, the message to the nations. The message to the nations about God's sovereign power. Verse 1. God's challenging them. He says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. It's a challenge. 
And the Lord says, come on, nations. Let's get together and let's see who's really in control. Verse 2 through 4, he starts. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Now, what does he mean by that? We know from chapters 44, 45, we know from the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1, we know from history that this one from the east whom victory meets at every step is a powerful king of Persia whose name is Cyrus. And he eventually, as we've already said, will overtake the Babylonians who are controlling Judah at this point and he'll send them back to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about Cyrus is that he is not a Jew. He is not a descendant of Abraham. He is not one of the kings of Israel and Judah. But God stirred him up. God used him to liberate and return the Jewish people. That shows us that God is not limited to any one people or any one nation. God is Lord of all. It also shows us that God doesn't even need people to believe in Him or to cooperate with Him before He will use them for His glory. Why? Because God is Lord. He's Lord over all. That's why we pray the way we do. It's why I pray the way I do for the nations. When there's war, I pray that God will be sovereign over people who don't even know Him, are not saved, and will spend eternity in hell. But God is in control. That's why we pray to Him to use His sovereign power for His glory. Remember that Isaiah wrote this before it actually happened. Which tells us again that God can decree and declare the future and cause it to happen. He stirred up Cyrus to deliver his people. And he talked about it a hundred years before it happened. This is how the Lord identifies himself as being sovereign. Verse 4. Who has performed and done this? This is raising up Cyrus to deliver his people. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I. The Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. Lord, help us get this. Lord, help us to see this today. The Lord said, I am He. Verses 5 through 7, the nations fear and tremble at the advance of this conquering Cyrus who's been stirred up by the Lord. And so what do they do? They consult and they encourage one another and they get out their idols and they want to see what they are supposed to do. Now, verse 7 ends with the idol makers. And that's our link. We're going to skip over, we're going to come back. We're going to skip over that middle section to Judah. We're going to skip over and finish up with the, with the nations in verse 21. But there's our link in verse 7. He finishes with the idol makers. Skip to verse 21. He's back to the idol makers and he says this. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them. Tell us what will happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, what they mean. 
that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. You see what the Lord's doing? He's saying, bring your idols and let's have an argument about who's sovereign and let's see if your idols can tell us the future like I can. And if they can, then they're God, but they couldn't. Verse 23, he said, let the idols do anything, good or bad, good or harm. Just do something to show that you have any power, any life in you, that you have any control at all. God is scorning. He's scorning them. Verse 24, of course, they say nothing and they do nothing. Why? Because he says they are nothing. Actually, they are something. They are an abomination. As are those who choose them, an abomination to the Lord. It is a serious thing to worship idols. More to come on idols in the chapters to come, the weeks to come. Isaiah says a lot about the idols to come, and we'll we'll be there. But for now, here are a few things. The Lord identifies himself as I am. That means he's alive. He is alive and he is eternal. And it means that he is outside. This is important. He is outside of his creation. He is above. He is beyond his creation. He is sovereign over his creation. He is not created. However, he's active. He's engaged in his creation. He's governing his creation even those who don't acknowledge him. And you might say, well, he's not doing a good job. To which the Bible says, he's being patient. He's being patient. And his patience with this rebellious world and the evil people in it is for the purpose of calling them to repentance. He's being patient so people will repent. But his patience won't last forever. But he's provided a way. And the way is Jesus. And if you will repent now and believe, you will be saved. God is the I am. The idols that he's talking about here, they could be physical. They could be metaphysical, philosophical. They might be material, stone, metal, wood, carved out by people. They might be mental, just in our minds. But whether they are material or mental, They are crafted by humans, the human hand, the human mind. That means limited. That means locked in to this created system. And when we trust them, we're not trusting God. Now, we live in our culture, in our day, and we say we don't have idols. Oh, we have idols. I, I think, this is off the top of my head, it's not in the notes. I think when I was in India, I think someone told me that the Hindu religion has, is it 33 million? I think it's 33 million gods. 
Yeah, yeah, somebody's giving me a thumbs up. Thank you. 30, 30 to 33 million gods. We can multiply that by 10, 100, the number of gods in our brains setting up and not trusting God. And when we don't trust God and we trust our idols, we turn on each other because then it becomes my idol versus your idol. We must turn to the one who is outside of us. This is a great biblical theme. We look to one who is outside of us in our created system in order because he is sovereign over it. He created it. We must turn to the Lord who created all to trust him and to obey him and to be saved. The Lord only, the message is, not an idol in whatever form. The Lord only can give meaning to the past. He says in verses 21, 22, the Lord only can look to the past and say, this is what it means, this is what it's about. The Lord only can set the direction of the future. The Lord only can make it happen. That's the message to the nations. But remember, God's people are listening to this because they are being called to trust Him in their captivity. Trust Him. Don't let the circumstances cause you to believe, He's saying, cause you to believe that my sovereignty is threatened and that you are no longer my chosen people. I am God and you are mine. Which is the message, the second message that he gives to his people, our focus today, verses 8 through 20. What a shift. He goes from the cosmic, this grand scale, down to a people of the covenant. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. My offspring, Abraham, my friend, you see, just goes down to the people of the covenant. He goes from all the nations to my chosen. And what a shift in tone in verse 8. The tone shifts. He goes from challenge and scorn of the nations because of their idolatry to fear not, my servant, my chosen. Here's the message to God's elect. God's chosen ones. Here's the message for Israel of the day. Isaiah's preaching to them. Here's the message of the church today, of Jesus Christ. Here's the message to you today, Christian, by faith in Christ. Hear this. Believe this. The message is I am. Fear not. The exhortation is fear not. Three times, verse 10, 13, 14, three times. Fear not. But the basis of the exhortation is I am, I have, I will. The order is of ultimate importance. I am, I have, I will. That's the basis of it all. The order is important. Isaiah is being purposeful here. The Lord is being purposeful here in his words. I am, verse verse 4. He's already identified himself this way. I am the Lord. You know, look at the word Lord. You see it? We've said it before, but it's worth reminding. It's all caps. See it? Big L, should be anyway in your Bible. Big L and then smaller all caps, O-R-D. Why? That's the English way of writing the name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. Where'd that name come from? God gave it to himself. Exodus chapter 3. The people are going to be delivered from the other thing they went through, slavery in Egypt. Exile. Egypt. They went, they were in Egypt, and God's going to raise up Moses, and Moses is afraid. And the Lord said, I am. 
who I am. And in English, we write Lord, all caps, to speak of the I am. That's who God is. Verses 8 through 20 tell us all about I am, the Lord. Astounding realities. Just follow with me, if you will. Verse 8. I am. He, God, He chose them. Election. He called them. The offspring of Abraham from the ends of the earth. Why that? Because Abraham came from Ur. He said, Abraham was my friend. Why? Because God disclosed his plan to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. That made Abraham his friend. Well, the plan is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one, is the son from Abraham who blesses all the nations through faith in him and salvation. And Jesus disclosed the same plan to his disciples whom he called friends in John chapter 15. We're the friends of God, Christian. Every word of this is for you now as it was for Israel then because we are in Christ, the friends of Christ by grace through faith, chosen by Christ, disclosed the plan of God from Christ. We are chosen as his servants, he said, not cast off. We by faith, Romans chapter 4 says, every person who has faith in Jesus Christ has faith like their father Abraham did and makes that person Jew or Gentile an offspring of Abraham. We're in this. The son of Abraham who blesses the nations is Jesus Christ through Isaac and Jacob. All who trust in the son are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Christ brings us into the covenant people of God. The promises of these verses for Israel and Judah in the exile are yes for us in Christ today. That's why we can read them. We can memorize them. We can pray them. We can sing them. There are songs built on this, hymns built on this. We can do it because this is God's word for us today. Verse 10, the I am, he says, I am with you. The presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Praise his name. He is with us. We can go to the highest heaven, the deepest depths. He'll be with us. And he's with you when you wake up in the morning, on your way to work, sitting in a classroom at school, young people, he's with you. I am with you. Verse 10, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, the hand of God. We saw his arm in chapter 40, his, his arm that rules and his arm that gathered his, gathers his people. Here it is, the righteous right hand, the arm of God that ensures victory and righteousness for his people. He will strengthen us. He will help us. He will uphold us. The world is full of suffering. The history of the church is a history of suffering on the part of God's people. But in all the suffering, we can confidently say that he has never for one time cast his people off or let them slip from his hand. He has held them and he will get his people all the way home. Verses 11 and 12, I will bring your enemies to nothing. The enemies are real. The flesh is an enemy. The enemy within, even a Christian saved by God's grace, still has the flesh indwelling sin, an enemy within, and that enemy will be put down. And the world fighting against Christ, hating the church, will be put down, and the devil himself will be crushed, and the Lord will crush him under our feet. He says he will bring our enemies to nothing. Verse 14, 
I am your Redeemer. We're going to hear that word again in the coming weeks. Deliverer. With a purchase price, the Lord redeems. He brings us from darkness and sin and condemnation into light and holiness and life. Verse 15, a very interesting verse. He says he's going to make them a threshing sledge. That means that the Lord will use his people to judge the nations. It probably means this. I think it does. How the world responds to God's people. How the world responds to the gospel message that comes through God's people. How the world responds to Jesus Christ, who is center of this message of the gospel, will be the single issue in judgment. This is built in the very promise that God made to Abraham. What did God say to Abraham in Genesis 12? He said, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who dishonor you. You'll be a threshing sledge. How they respond to you will be judgment. This is the power of God. Verses 17 through 19. Beautiful imagery here. Language of not only now, but the days coming, the newness to come. He said he will renew the souls of the thirsty, the needy, the poor, and he will renew all of creation. That's what the Lord will do. Verse 20. So that they will know. The Lord says, I will be known as the Holy One of Israel who created all of this. Do you see? Lord, give us eyes to see. Do you see who the Lord is? Do you see what He's done by His grace? Do you see what He will do by His grace? Now I need you to help me see. And you need me to help you see. That's why we go to church. We're here to help each other see God. I need this. Do you see the order of things? Do you see that it's I am, I have, I will? Do you see that's first? That's the foundation. Nothing can happen without that. And then second, based on that, built on that, it's fear not. Do you see this? And then God's message, verse 10. After he's laid the foundation, after he's set reality, then he says, fear not. Be not dismayed. It's a theme that's going to be repeated throughout Isaiah. It's a theme that's throughout the whole Bible. I mean, everywhere you turn, at every stage of redemptive history throughout the Scriptures, you hear the Lord saying, fear not. Fear not. None of this. Captivity, destroyed city, temple gone. None of this, none of this alters the reality of God's sovereignty and of your election in Christ. We have to remember this, brothers and sisters. Regardless of what happens, nothing, nothing alters the reality of God's sovereignty and of our election in Jesus Christ. Fear not. 
Fear not, he says, nothing can interfere with the Lord's care. He strengthens, look at the text, verse 10, he strengthens, he helps, he upholds with his righteous right hand. Fear not. Fear not. Nothing will prevent the final victory of Jesus Christ over Satan and sin and sorrow and sickness and what other word I can come up with with an S. Nothing will threaten the victory of Christ. Fear not. Nothing will separate you from His love. Nothing. Fear not. Fill in the blank. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Fill in the blank. Fear not. Nothing will stand against them. But oh, how we fear. I don't stand before you today as an expert on courage over fear. I don't. I do not stand here as someone who has conquered every fear in my own life, primarily because I don't even know what's going to happen when I leave this building today. Thank the Lord that bridging the gap, closing the gap between the truth and my life is not a requirement before I can preach. And it's not a requirement for you before you can claim to believe it. We fear. But we do repeat what the Lord said through Isaiah. And we do rally ourselves together as a congregation so that we can move on with I am, fear not. This is not fear not because we are. It's not fear not because we can. It's not fear not because we will. It's fear not because he is, because he can, because he has, because he will. The answer to fear is not in ourselves. It's not in trusting ourselves. The answer to fear is in the Lord, in his word. So trust him. Now, little, little, little project here, okay? Go back to verse 8. Now, we've, we've, we've said a lot. And we've tried to unpack this, so to speak. Now, after that, I read these three verses at the beginning. Now, having said all that, I want to read them again and see if they sound differently to you. And then I want you to take them home with you and start the year off with them. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Come to Christ today. Turn to Christ today. That promise is for you. When you turn to Christ today, become a Christian, repent of your sin, trust Jesus, let us know how we can help you. Keep this promise before you every day. Every day, keep it before you. Encourage somebody with it.
and let's walk on.